Blessings to you who may be listening to this at home or at another time. This is not being recorded during the service, but following the service. Here in the sanctuary, you can still hear some cleaning going up in the background, but maybe that's appropriate. For sometimes it's when everyone clears out and we tidy up the things in our life that the Spirit settles in. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, may these words be a blessing to you in your life. The first reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, verses 15 to 20. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in God's ways and by observing God's commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live. Become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. If your heart turns away, and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying God and holding fast to God. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And the second reading comes from the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard it said, to those of ancient times you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Friends, whether or not it sounds like it, this is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I have set before you life and prosperity or death and adversity. Which one do you want? 
This is the question of our first reading from the Older Testament. It seems to me the easiest choice imaginable. Where was this test writer when I was still in school? How about the shortest sermon of all time? Let's choose life and prosperity. Amen. Of course, we know it's not so easy. Prosperity isn't available to all. There are churches who will tell you it is if you just believe it and send them a check. But the only one guaranteed to get rich in that transaction is the church. And if you don't, well, then it's because you haven't believed enough. And that in the church is what we call blasphemy. On the other end of the spectrum, some equated prosperity with riches and have found it's not all it's cracked up to be. Like prosperity, life isn't something everyone gets to choose equally. Does a child in a war-torn part of the world get to choose life? What about a wealthy woman who's diagnosed with cancer at a young age? Does she get to choose? What about all the people who can't care for themselves or live in a safe place? Do they get the same choice as others? To complicate things even further, Jesus of Nazareth, who we claim to follow, who would have counted this text as his scripture, chose neither prosperity nor in the end life, at least not as we commonly define those terms. So is it the wrong question? Life or death? I think it's the right question. I think instead it's that we've largely answered that only on a shallow level. As I've said before, faith is about orientation of our hearts. It's about what we love, not what we believe. And I'm not sure we love life or even prosperity, true prosperity, not in the terms of our culture, excess and greed, but of having enough, of being well, being whole, being secure. Matthew Fox who I mentioned just last week, this great mystic and theologian, says, in fact, what our culture loves the most is not life, but death. Literally, he accuses us of necrophilia. And you don't have to look very far to see our obsession with death, our entertainment, the level of violence in our society, the way our way of life leads to death in some form or another for others. And I'm not saying we should be ignoring death. Quite the contrary. Our obsession with death is our coping mechanism for our desire to avoid it and to avoid taking an honest look at it. And a healthy culture neither sweeps death under the rug nor fetishizes it. It ritualizes it. It honors it. It gives us ways to move through it without being swallowed up by it. It's amazing how many people, even at funerals, don't want to acknowledge death. They only want to celebrate life. And I want to celebrate too. But our mourning, our grief, our grieving, our missing what is gone, is an expression of our love for life. The ways our culture tries to love life are often also unhealthy 
We spend all kinds of money on products and services to extend our life at all costs while devoting very little or at least less to true quality of life. I'll never forget a woman from my last congregation. She was dying when I was trying to decide whether or not to come to this church to work among you. Graciously, you all gave me the time to attend to her and to them. Her name was Happy. It was a good name. Her death was a surprise. She was basically of good health. An x-ray for something or a scan for something that was quite treatable inadvertently revealed a spot on her lung. But that too was likely benign. They simply wanted to remove it to be sure. In the midst of that procedure, she threw a blood clot and it caused significant brain damage. It's the nightmare story. I don't tell it to make you anxious or frighten you. No, it does break through the illusion we have of stability and control. Happy's wishes had long been made clear, including in writing. She said that people are kept alive in this country at exorbitant expense with no hope of meaningful quality of life, while others suffer without health care elsewhere. And she made clear that in no uncertain terms should she reach that state, and she was specific about what that state was for her, she did not want her life prolonged. In fact, she wanted the money that would be used for her care to be sent where it wasn't as good or as available for people who could be given a chance at life, real life. So we held vigil as sustenance was withheld. She was gone in a week. It was the biggest funeral I've ever done. And that was her way of choosing doesn't have to be yours, but I might say in her dying, she was choosing and recognizing what loving life really looked like. In our culture, loving life has been reduced into a singular fight over one thing, abortion. I'm not going to solve the way you feel about that now. It touches our heartstrings. It comes from a place of faith for us, even though we may fall in different places. But just as we might say some are too casual about the termination of a pregnancy, some are too casual about actually supporting life after it emerges from the womb. And moreover, our sole focus on that debate misses the myriad of ways we do not love life in our living. And we are called to choose it. We being the operative word. Deuteronomy, like so much of scripture, is concerned with the community. And with our highly individualistic lens, we run the risk of encountering others, excuse me, of encumbering others' ability for life by the choices that we make individually. Fox says if we're going to make it, we have to move from necrophilia to biophilia. And he means literally if we are, as a species, are to make it. We have to love life, but not just human life. He reminds us that we belong to a larger biosphere, a cosmos, all of which was created by the creator. And we've lost a sense of where we fit in that, and that's why we're so anxious. We're untethered, disconnected from all that is alive. As Fox reminds us, we've been raised on Newtonian physics, and we forget sometimes that this is all alive. Even the planet itself behaves far more like a living being than it does a dead piece of granite. 
though the mystics would say that the rocks too are telling of God, are carrying ancient wisdom. Many indigenous spiritualities have known this since the beginning. Love this, all of this. Am I saying going out, go out and hug trees? No, get their consent first. And then yes, hug away. Some years back, I was in a gathering of Presbyterian clergy for a conversation about the climate crisis had to do with our religion and our role as leaders in it. The anxiety in the room rose as we spoke about sea level rise and the impact for the poorest and most vulnerable in particular. Oh, I I misspoke. There was a rabbi present too, just one. And it was the rabbi who spoke up and called us home to our love of life because we'd settled in, we'd settled in only to fearing death. She said, you know, this is important. All of this is important. The stuff we're doing here is true. It matters. But sometimes it's also important. It's also true that we need to go and sit under a good tree and enjoy its beauty and delight in its shade. And even though she didn't put it this way, to fall in love again. Perhaps the rabbi understood because her tradition is one rooted in the earth. The festivals in the Jewish tradition are related to the cycles of the seasons, to the land, and to the harvest. Biophilia, loving life. It's no mystery social media is dominated by two genres. Hate speech, where we degrade the other, whoever the other is, and by the way, you are another for someone. And another category more important than that. Cat videos. Okay, dog videos too. Any animal clips. We can acknowledge we're all addicted to them. And it sounds silly on the surface, but one is death, hatred, discrimination. And the other, believe it or not, is love of life because they are so pure in their way of being that we can't help but feel that we're connected to something better through them. Now, the good news is there are endless ways to practice your biophilia. I think of a man I just learned about, a physical therapist who's been trained in Feldenkrais, which is a kind of body movement. He works with cerebral palsy patients, giving them the ability to dress and take care of themselves and the accompanying dignity that they have for the first time. That's restoring life. Or conservationists who seem to have given their lives in Mexico to protect the fragile monarch habitats. If you don't see the monarchs as showing forth the glory of God, then I'm not sure I can do much for you. Or farmers, everyday folks, you don't have to be an activist make their land pesticide-free and full of native plants, giving the pollinators a chance. And this whole thing a chance. The investments we have won't matter, folks, if the pollinators are gone. Maybe you want a spiritual practice to take on. Try looking at the sky, which Matthew Fox calls Father Sky. If you're more comfortable, say Heavenly Father. 
the word is the same in scripture. 10 minutes a day, looking at the sky. No other distractions. And watch how your life changes. Don't take my word for it. Try it yourself. Jesus is described in many ways in our tradition as Savior, as Lord, a political term, as Messiah, the Anointed One, as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the one infused with the flow of God. One way to think of him is simply as the connected one. He's totally connected to life, eternally. When he meets someone, he's instantly connected to their suffering, for example. Scripture likes to say he was moved with compassion because he loves life. Look at the illustrations he uses when he teaches. They're not just of people, either. He speaks of lilies, of a mustard seed, of sheep, of goats, of bread and wine, of vine and branches. He heals with spit from his own body mixed with mud or dirt, saliva from the earth, the earth from which we come. Remember, in our first creation myth, excuse me, in the first human of our creation myth, one of our creation stories. The first being is named Adam. Adam is a being from the soil. It's what his name means. The same soil from which the trees and the fruit come. Jesus teaches with trees. His worldview was the living world. Jesus Christ was a biophiliac. In today's reading, he doesn't seem that way. He seems to be harsh, promising death. You've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So much for our misguided stereotypes about the angry Old Testament God and the loving New Testament Jesus. Look, in the Old Testament, we're just told to choose life and prosperity over death and adversity. It's Jesus who seems to raise the stakes to impossible heights. Why? Because Jesus loves life. His point is not to set up an impossible standard. It's it's to reflect back to us the destructive potential of our choices. Sure, there's a place for anger, but we cannot let our anger in turn inflict death. That's a hell of our own making. Jesus isn't threatening his followers. He's offering them a cautionary tale, one rooted not just in our actions, but in our heart. Orient your heart toward unfaithfulness. And you've already done violence to the relationship. Friends, Jesus is not obsessed with hell. We are. Finished a book not long ago on hell by David Bentley Hart, an Eastern Orthodox theologian, and drawing from both the biblical and philosophical tradition, he argues adamantly against the notion of a place of eternal punishment. Who has resisted him the most, do you think? Where has the pushback for his work come from? Christianity and Christians. Why? Because necrophilia has infected this tradition as well. And we can't imagine a God that just gives life. Love life. And you will find life. And you will find prosperity. Even though your definition of prosperity might well change. This is our purpose, friends. 
This is our work. As Mary Oliver puts it, my work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers, there the hummingbird. Equal seekers of sweetness, here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boat boots old, is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the the Delphinium, the sheep and the pasture and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren to the sleepy dug up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. And that's our assignment, to choose between life and death. And there will be a test. In fact, your life is the test. Answer well. Amen. Amen.